Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Emma Stein. Uh, she's assistant curator uh, of South and Southeast Asian art at the Smithsonian National Museum of Asian Art. We'll be talking about a fascinating, uh, uh, important contribution to the field called Constructing Kanchi, a city of infinite temples. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. It's a, a pleasure and an honor to be here today with you. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, this will be a fun conversation indeed. Tell me, uh, what is it that you do? You know, your work as a curator, before we dive into the book, Give a bit of a background of, of what that's like, what that involves. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Um, so I work at the National Museum of Asian Art. Um, my area is, um, our collection really covers South Asia, Southeast Asia, and the Himalayas. But um, my primary responsibility is our Southeast Asia collection and also South India because of um because of the research that I've, I've done directly for this book and in my, my doctoral work, um, studying Chola bronzes, processions, um, Hindu ritual, religious culture, et cetera. Um, so my job at the museum is um, often taking extremely complex material and making it um, legible, accessible, exciting, transformative for general public audiences and for everybody who ranges from specialist experts to, um, you know, to young children. So it's a big, it's a big challenge, but um, I really enjoy the public facing aspect of. It sounds like, it sounds like you do a a, a visual version of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Fantastic. Um, tell us a bit about that journey. I mean, did you did you always want to go into um, 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 curation? Uh, do, like, what 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 got you on this path? Was it related to your PhD? Were they separate? Like, how did that work out for you? I've always been an objects person and a space person. Um, I I actually have a background as a as a professional dancer. Um, I was a modern dancer trained in Martha Graham technique in New York. Um, And Martha Graham technique is extremely three-dimensional. It's all about spirals around your back and turning around your spine and kind of impulses from your torso moving out into your extremities. So I've always thought about the body in space. And I think that really um, informs my understanding of art and architecture and my love of, of temples and spaces to explore that have all these different um, sizes and shapes of, of areas that contain the body or contain the gods inside. Um, so that, that background as a dancer certainly drove me um, to be interested in, in museums and in objects. Um, and my goal as um, an art historian and in pursuing a PhD was always to become a curator. I love to teach, I love to, to lecture and things like that, but certainly the idea of juxtaposing objects and creating spaces in galleries was, was the direction that I wanted to go. A dancer um, and a doctor, a multi a multifaceted individual indeed. <laughs> um, uh, just to drill down on this a little bit more, I think there might be some interest uh, uh, among public. Um, uh, are curators typically PhDs, or are you the exception? Would you say curators now typically are PhDs? Yes. Um, in previous generations. 
sometimes going into a museum with a collection was the really the only opportunity to study that type of, of, of work. And curators have been responsible for creating sort of new academic disciplines within art history. Um, so some of the more senior curators and from previous generations didn't have PhDs, mostly because there was no where to study what they did and no, no one to study with. But certainly today, curators generally have, have PhDs. So then this book uh, is the result of your doctoral research, correct? Yes. Okay, so now tell us how you, you know, was it the desire to curate that got you into the PhD program or, you know, um, what, what's the backstory behind the book? How did you get interested in this particular topic? Great question. Trying to think how far back to go. <laughs> Um, the way that I fell in love with India was really through Cambodian temples and dance. Uh, my first trip to Asia was to Cambodia in 2004. And I was captivated by the, the sheer number of temples. Of course, we've all heard of Angkor Wat, but as soon as you start to do the, the tiniest amount of research, you realize that Angkor Wat is one temple among a complex of dozens of temples in the immediate area. That plus the beauty of the carvings and the, the lushness of the landscape really captured my imagination. It took me a long time to get back to doing a PhD, but um, because I was dancing at that point, but I think that um, I think that that interest in a place that had many, many temples built up over the course of, of many centuries um, never left me. I think that lingered. And so when I when I decided that it was it was time to to pursue, my doctoral studies, that was always a goal. I, I did my BA in, um, in art history at Columbia. I danced parallel to that. And then I danced for about seven years um, and then entered the art world fully. When I decided it was time to pursue the PhD and I began to look for a topic it was clear that I really needed to work in South Asia rather than Southeast Asia. In part, that was due to opportunity in, in the USA. At that point, there really wasn't anyone specializing in Southeast Asian temple architecture in a university PhD program that I could go to, to study with. And I, I think now there's starting to be much more of an incorporation of Southeast Asia into the academic discipline. But I also understood that I really needed to learn the roots of the religious traditions that informed and architectural planning that informed Southeast Asian temples. So I, I searched for a topic and a place where I could, I could study India, but with this kind of wider lens, like looking towards trans-regional connections, looking for a site that would, that would feed this interest in a, in a, a wider um, integrated region across South and Southeast Asia. And I took a field trip to India the first summer of my PhD program and just sort of went looking for a site to work on. I went to India and Sri Lanka and I spent one day in Kanchi. That was it. But that was the place that, that lingered. And I think it kind of reignited also that excitement that I first felt in Cambodia about a place with many temples, a lot of activity. Um, of course, in Kanchi, it's mostly living temples that are vibrant with, with ritual. Um, and pilgrims and visitors coming in every day. So that aspect of the living city, of a place with many temples, um, a place that had not been written about comprehensively before, 
And then as I started to do research, I found that there were all these connections to other parts of India and to Southeast Asia, um, and that Kanchi had this legendary history that went far beyond the, the era of the Pallavas and the Cholas alone. So the holy city of Kanchi, Kanchipuram, this is a, a major, uh, uh, to contextualize, I imagine a great many of the audience members would know this, but Kanchi is an ancient, uh, venerable, sacred site, uh, comparable, for example, to perhaps Varanasi, you know, it, it's, a, it's a site of massive pilgrimage and uh, temples galore. And if you didn't know that, then the subtitle is a spoiler alert, uh, City of Infinite Temples. Um, so you, 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 you touched down in Kanchi. And uh, that day, you know, uh, awoke in your lifetimes of asanas <laughs> of exposure to all things Kanchi, and you you were hooked. Okay, I get it. I get it. It's it's uh, uh, sometimes people ask why I chose the Devi Mahatmya or even Puranas. I'm like, I'm not sure I had much say in the matter, frankly. <laughs> Yeah, maybe you could say Kanchi chose me, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, maybe that's you. <laughs> um, the, the book is fascinating on a number of levels. Let's let's just start uh, super basic. What's the book about? Like, what is your what is your main um, quandary question? You know, like how what is the book trying to show or do? So the books really about the, the growth and development and transformation of Kanchi during primarily the era of the Pallavas and the Cholas, which was the time that it was a royal capital for these two important South Indian dynasties. And it was also the period of the beginning of sacred architecture in the durable medium of stone in South India. Um, other parts of India have longer histories of, of stone temple architecture, but in the South, it really begins in earnest um, kind of late 7th century and then really picks up in the 8th century. So the Pallavas and the Cholas reign from about the 8th through 13th century during this heightened period of temple construction. And I was curious about the way that um, temples function in the urban landscape how they contributed to the, the shifting borders of the city. Is the current footprint of the, of the city the same as it always has been for all intents and purposes or has it moved over time? How's it structured? How's it layered? And then how has it been changed um, in the aftermath, in the many centuries since that period of initial um, initial accelerated construction. Yeah, so um, <laughs> there's so many different, uh, <laughs> there's so many different points of entry. Um, mm -hmm. Let me just pick one. Uh, um, is it common, like, do we have a scholarship on cities? Like, do we have monographs on various index cities? Or is that fairly rare? There's certainly been a lot of work done on, on Varanasi, which you mentioned earlier. Um, and I think that it's, oh, and on, on Halabidu, um, Catherine Kazdorf did her PhD work there. Um, and actually our work intersects in a number of ways in the ways we've looked at the structure of cities. Um, so there, there, I'm sure I'm leaving out a lot of important work, but, um, but in terms sure. of you know, just on, on a city, um, to my mind, it seems relatively scant. I mean, you'd have a different perspective because you've obviously this is your area of expertise, but it seems to me from the broad, broader Hindu studies context that there are relatively few monographs that will have a, a city as the, the subject of the monograph. Um, so that's one of the interesting aspects of this work. Uh, you mentioned uh, the dynasties, the kingdoms, uh, and the historical period that you're focusing on. Would you say this is a historical work? Is, 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 is that your primary or exclusive methodology? I think that the purpose of studying history is to understand the present. And I'm always interested in the way that history informs the present. 
So while the first two chapters definitely focus in that eighth through 13th century or seventh through 14th century moment, um, the rest of the book just kind of spirals out from there. And all the way through, there's a grounding and a context in, in the contemporary and in the texture of the city today. So it is historical, but I would hope that this book would also be of interest to anyone working on, um, on the colonial period, on post-colonialism, and then on, on present day, um, Hindu culture, um, religion, art history, temple architecture, and urbanism. Well, you preempted one of my questions, uh, which was, you know, who might be interested in this book or what subfields uh, might, it, might it engage? Um, why don't you give us a, a lay of the land of how the book is structured? <laughs> so the book is structured through the pairing of, um, of, of Kshetra and Kshatra, this dual principle of dominion um, that is known from South Asian literature about kingship and sovereignty. And so Kshetra is um, a Sanskrit term meaning field. And so it can be the terrestrial field, like it can be a field a farmer plows. It can also be the field, um, meaning the body as the field for the indwelling soul. Um, it's a really beautiful concept. So the, the so Kshetra is, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I couldn't resist the, the famous opening lines of the Bhagavad Gita come to mind, right? Dharma Kshetra, Kuru Kshetra. So it's, it is a beautiful metaphor. I just, uh, one of my last uh, podcast interviews was with Karen O'Brien um, Kopp, who was talking about the use of, of agricultural metaphors, like seed, the, the toasting of the seeds. And, and it, 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 it's Buddhist, it's Hindu, it's, it's this, this metaphor that's so pervasive and what kinds of seeds are they referring to? So it's definitely a rich, rich metaphor. Um, it, it's not typically my habit to interrupt folks on this podcast, so I apologize. Please continue. Oh, please! That was a great that was a great interruption. Thank you. <laughs> so, Kshetra is the the terrestrial dominion of of a sovereign, and so the the first half of the book is kind of this this Kshetra of of Kanchi, which is where are the temples located, where are the roads located, where are the rivers located, where are the fields located? Um, you know, how did that, how, what, what order were things built? Kind of making um, chronologies, both um, relative chronologies between buildings and roads, and also even within individual structures and within individual shrines within those structures. Um, and, and, and then we, you know, so once we, we've laid the field, we've defined our, our boundaries, we've defined our, our ground, then the book transitions into this, um, this, this less tangible um, aspect of dominion, which is kshatra, which is sphere of influence. So what was, what was Kanchi's sphere of influence beyond the boundaries of the city. So what happened in the villages and the agrarian hinterlands that surround the city, how were those transformed during the time that the city was kind of coming up? And then what was the city's role in, in larger trans-regional networks of, of Buddhism, of, um, of circulation of goods and ideas, primarily religious cultures, traditions across a wider, a wider region. And then how did Kanchi compare with other cities across this wider region where it had reach, it had connections? Um, how did it compare structurally? I looked far and wide for other cities that had a similar kind of, um, a similar kind of structuring of this, this dense but wide dis distribution of temples where the city kind of squeezes in between the temples and there's a close coordination between temples and roads, which I hope we'll talk more about. Uh, and I, I didn't find other places in India that were comparable, certainly not in Tamil Nadu. Um, sometimes people bring up Kumbakonam because it's another city in in. 
uh, Tamil Nadu that has multiple temples, but it's not exactly structured the same way that Kanchi is. So I looked for these comparisons and I found them more across Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka. Um, and if we think back to, to that first excitement that I felt in, in Cambodia and looking at, at Angkor and the way that there was this multiplicity of temples in an urban area. And now with all the, all the archeological work that's being done in Cambodia, we know that people were living chaka block within the temples, within the temple complexes and around them. And that the, the city of Angkor was structured in a way much like Kanchi where the city is everywhere and the temples are everywhere too, right? So the, the third chapter moves into this more, um, I would even say more speculative kind of, of a wider scope of inquiry that I hope that future researchers will take up and do even more um, granular comparisons between these, these, these cities. I hope that urban studies, um, scholars will, will work this way and that experts within each of those areas will also try to peel away the layers from their cities in a similar manner with Kanchipuram in mind. And then we move sort of chronologically as well forwards radically in time to the colonial period and um, to travelers accounts early photographic surveys, records of the archeological survey of India from its formative period um, in the, the 19th and early 20th centuries. And look at what happened in Kanchi during that time and how that can reveal changes to the structures that have happened in relatively recent, very recent history, even since the 20th century to how we see the city today. You mentioned in passing this tantalizing thought about the association between temples and roads, and now you'll have to fill us in on that association. Absolutely. So this is, this is for me, the most fascinating aspect of, of Kanchi is that it's structured with this hidden footprint, this hidden urban plan and a beautiful symmetry where temples face each other from across a central thoroughfare. So there's a main road that runs right through the center of the city. And it's still a main road. Historically, it was a main road beginning around the year 1000, but still today it's the widest street in town. It cuts right through. It's busy with traffic from about six o'clock in the morning until well after sundown, which makes taking a photograph of it really difficult. But um, what I found as I began to map Conchi's temples, because my process was um, really just walking around the city. It's a city, but it's, you know, it's a small city. You can walk, it's a long walk from one side to the other. But I would walk because that way I would, I would sort of trip over things and I would find temples that hadn't been previously documented before, some of which were active shrines and others were more or less hidden behind perpetually locked gates. And I could just see the, the tower of its central sanctum kind of peeking out over the enclosure walls. So as I started to document the temples in the city and to map them, the two things that I would always make sure to note were deity of dedication. Was it, was it Shiva? Was it Vishnu? Was it the goddess? Was it Murugan? Was it someone else? And orientation, which way did the temple face? And what I found was I started at a point in time, I started to be able to predict which direction the temple would face as I was approaching the temple. And as I, I placed more and more of them on a map and noted the orientation, I started to see that they were, they were all facing towards the middle of the city. They were facing something east or west. You know, it wasn't it wasn't on on a kind of diagonal. Um, it was it was east or west, no matter where they were placed in the city. And there there are some exceptions. So I began to wonder, what is 
what is it that they're facing? They're facing each other, but maybe there's something at the center of town. And then I started mapping roads as well. And what I found was that it wasn't a singular structure, though I do think there was a, there was a royal palace somewhere in, in the middle, but sort of towards the north of the city, towards the northern um, uh, part of the city, but they were all facing this road. So no matter where in Kanchi a temple was located, if it was to the east of the road, if it was on the east side of town, it was facing west. And if it was to the west of the road, um, if it was on the west side of town, it was, it was facing east. So the gods were kind of seeing eye to eye, which is something that's said locally um, by some of the priests, especially. They say in Kanchi, the gods see to eye to eye. Um, but they were also facing this main road into and out of the city. It's fascinating and the, the pattern devolves as soon as, or dissolves as soon as you get outside of the city, um, either north or south, but the road continues. And I began to follow this road, both north and south and found that to the south, it leads to uh, a whole string of places that today are pretty humble villages, but they have these massive, stone temples from the Chola period primarily um, that were carved by the same expert stone carvers who were working on the temples in Kanchi and in the region. And those temples speak to a former level of prosperity and prosperousness that these places once had. That's the southern end. And on the northern end, it follows also, or it arrives at several other sites that have these, these um, monumental temples that speak to the, the legacy of the place. And it eventually arrives at Tirupati, which is an extremely famous place in, in South India, in India more broadly. Um, it's probably the most important Vaishnava destination today. It's a hilltop temple known as the Golden Temple. And people still regularly traverse this journey from between Kanchi and Tirupati. It's an ancient processional route that's still followed today. So the road itself was this main point of access. It was a sacred road. It was a commercial road. It linked the city with areas to the north and the south. And within the city, it functioned as, as this, this spinal cord that all temples oriented towards. This pattern, this layout that you've discovered, um, do we have a sense of the agency behind it and or the historical period? How far back does this pattern go? Mm -hmm. It goes back remarkably far. What I found is that all of the, the temples that were built during the Pallava period, so primarily between, between the 7th and 9th centuries with this this period of heightened activity during the eighth century. Those are all situated farther to the west. So they're all kind of on the western half of, of Kanchi today. And the Kailasanatha temple is the most, most famous of, of all of them. And Padma Kaimal has recently written a monograph just about that temple and about its history. Um, most of the research that's been done in Kanchi and even you know, since the colonial period has been on the Kailasanatha temple in particular, and sometimes with attention to other Pallava temples in the city. The Kailasanatha today stands on all the way on the western side of town. It's in a pretty quiet area. There's one street that leads to it. There is a small temple built about uh, three centuries later that stands just near it that, that today is a, is a popular, sort of popular um, local devotional site. It was, it was restored and revitalized during my field work, which was wonderful to see. But the Kailasanatha is an archeologically protected monument. It's not a major pilgrimage destination anymore. It's more frequented by um, the rare foreign traveler who comes, comes to Kanchi. 
But that was the main royal temple in the Pallava period. It probably wasn't on the Western outskirts of town at that point. But what started to happen towards the end of the eighth century is that temples start getting built farther to the east. So I feel there was this, um, there was this impetus to kind of start to shift the city in that direction or expand the city in that direction, really. So the borders start to move on the eastern side. And several other large temples, like the Vaikuntha Paramal and the Mukteshvara and Matangishvara, which are other Pallava period temples, were built farther on that side of town. And interestingly, those temples, while Kailasanatha faces east, which you know you could argue is the most standard direction for temples to face, it's certainly the most common. Um, those those three temples built slightly later, they all face west. <laughs> so there's already there's something starting right then in the second half of the eighth century, and I don't know what prompts it. I don't know why, but it starts around then, and then it just continues. And by around the year 1000, so many more temples had been built. Um, at this point, Kanchi is under the, the dominion of the Cholas, and so many more temples were built in that more Western area of the city. And they follow this pattern of orientation. If they're east of the main road, which by that point took over, there was an earlier road <laughs> that led into and out of the, the Pallava area of the city towards the Kailasanatha temple from the south. But by around the year 1000, that new main road had taken over and more and more temples get built with their orientations towards it. This is fascinating for so many reasons. Um, uh, you know, one can easily envision um, uh, um, a central deity temple figure that is sort of the, the hub of the, the orienting. And yet in this case, it's not something stationary. It's, it's a path, right? It's, it's a means of moving to and fro. And one wonders if there wasn't um, at some point some massive uh, murti that was, you know, uh, mm-hmm. process, processed along that path. Like mm-hmm. he or she was taken out of their massive, you know, uh, this is a word I've invented in English, uber shaktified, you know, <laughs> sanctum. And when this the deity... Uh, would come up that road all the other all the, all the deities of the local temples were already facing it mm-hmm. um comes to mind as well um i've spent a fair bit of time in a south indian temple north of toronto the richmond Hill hindu temple um mm-hmm. fascinating I've, I've learned a great deal actually being at that temple um, um the, one wonders. Uh, certainly, there there are there are various shastras, agamas, where we find um, the do's and don'ts of of temple maintenance, uh, the rituals required. Uh, you know, the Vastuvian direction on direction on like should should the murtis face north, south, east? Which murtis can be in which locations? If you know, one wonders if there isn't um, a body of shastra somewhere that talks about i realize this as well beyond uh, the the purview of your already very su- substantive contribution but one wonders if there isn't if there aren't rules known locally in terms of what was going on with this it looks like some branch of vastu even was going on if that makes sense mm-hmm. it does and i i do wonder if it was written but i also wonder which came first the scripture or this kind of convention of building because it's so local, because I can't find anywhere comparable. It seems that if it were, if it were scripture, if it were written, you might find that that text had circulated, right? Because it's easier for a text to circulate than it is for, I don't know, an architectural plan of a city, which didn't exist, um, to circulate. And the way that this convention which I I do believe was a local convention preserved through local knowledge, the way that this this has persisted even until the present, even today when temples are built, they're built such that they face the road. Not always, there are exceptions, but the fact that we still find this today 
but nobody talks about it. Makes me think that it is more just a matter of what you do. Local custom. Yeah, yeah. It has always been done this way, so we do it this way, as opposed to it being, you know, it is, it is written, so we do it this way. But and I then also... Yeah, who knows? I would be delighted. <laughs> who knows? And also begs the question whether or not these teachings are in oral memory somewhere in in in, in uh, pundit lineages locally. Yeah. Who knows? It's fascinating. Clearly, this method to this madness, great method that we're only uh, yeah, we're only starting to to note thanks to your research. Um, mm-hmm. Just a textual analog. I. I don't know, somehow stumbled upon the fact that the Devi Mahatmya is constructed in a sophisticated ring composition mm-hmm. where it, 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 we find, uh, sometimes we find order where we least expect it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a met- method to the madness behind yeah. the construction of Kanchi for sure. Um, and I, I do wonder if, um, if this saying, you know, in Kanchi, the temple see eye to eye, which is mostly spoken by, by older priests, if that is a kind of vestige of this, of this knowledge. It would be conjecture uh, for sure, but it, to my mind, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Absent any evidence, it, it can't be by chance that that practice is local custom and so is that saying and that yeah. practice maps onto the saying. You know, Whether or not people consciously realize or remember where that saying comes from, yeah. uh, definitely um, 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 seeing eye to eye seems to map onto the layout of the city, which is fascinating. Um, I'd like to ask you a question that that is, you know, a little more broad and, and maybe beyond your particular field of expertise, but you may well have more insight into this than I do. Um, what do we know about when temple Hinduism begins? Do we have a sense? Mm. By the Chola period, there's an expansion of the the types of sectors of society who seem to have been participants in temple life. We find this in inscriptions, um, that there were donations made by a wider range of of individuals. And there are also um, spaces that are kind of literally built in the temple that seem to accommodate a larger number of devotees. There are mandapas, which are these kind of pavilions that are shelters for pilgrims. Um, There are feeding halls that are specified in inscriptions as being for pilgrims traveling, for example, between Kanchi and Tirupati along that ancient pathway. Um, There are there's an, an enhancement to the kinds of facilities that temples are connected with. There's a, a temple and in what's today a village called Tirumukudal at the confluence of the Palar and Chear rivers um, south of Kanchi, but along the main road that has a lengthy inscription from the 11th century um, about all of the different kinds of establishments that this that that participated in this temple and that the temple was was directly responsible for, including a hospital, feeding house, um, and various and an educational facility, um, places for watering animals. You know, it, it really seemed to accommodate a great number of of, of visitors. So it's. It's within that that Chola era, which is you know precisely the time that my my book is looking at, um, when so many more temples are built in Kanchi, and each of those temples has such a, a larger footprint than any of the 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 Pallava era temples did. This is not to say that I believe that the Pallava temples were exclusively for members of the royal court, but I think we have the evidence there couple centuries later for this this swelling of of personnel and of clientele um, for the temples. It's also the time when when we know that religious processions of Hindu um, bronze icons of deities was in full swing. We have again inscriptions talking about donations of bronzes to temples, talking about processions, talking about rituals that took place. 
those are in lesser numbers and fewer numbers than um, than donative records of gifts of perpetual lamps for the gods or um, sheep to facilitate the oil for the lamps or land for cultivating a temple flower garden um, or funds for repairing a tank. <laughs> the ongoing maintenance and repairs and renovations that have happened with, um, you know, have, have had to take place for, for stone temples is just a continuing fact of life even today. What do you most hope folks might take away from this book? I hope that they'll see that Kanchi was never in a period of decline, that there was never a pause to its momentum, to its vibrancy, to its importance. There's a whole line of narrative in colonial literature that uses words like dilapidation, decay, decline, deterioration, abandon, ruin. And I hope that through this work, anyone who reads this will see that that was a fiction. Kanchi was a bustling, crowded city, replete with festivals and precious resources, um, both natural and, and material throughout the colonial period. It didn't have a pause and it continues that way today. An important intervention indeed. Um, tell us what was behind this perspective among earlier colonial scholars about the, the dilapidation, the, the decline, you know, what was driving that mm-hmm. characterization of Kanchi? Well, it was a characterization of South Asia more broadly, and it, it fostered the, the belief in their own necessity in the region and in, in the empire um, and in earlier colonial speculation in the area. There was a tendency um, I found, you know, now I can speak more specifically to Kanchi um, because it had such a wide range of temples, um, some of which, you know, today have become archaeologically preserved and others have become still these large, you know, popular centers of, of devotion, of active devotion. Already by the 18th, 19th century, the Pallava temples, which then were selected for archaeological preservation, it all connects, um, those were in a relative state of um, disuse, okay? And some of this is because there's there's a tendency within Tamil Nadu, at least, Um, for temples that were established by royal dynasties to fall out of use when the dynasty is no longer in power. And temples that were were built or rebuilt or reconstructed as a result of local patronage tend to continue. They They continue that legacy generation to generation of devotees. And this is, um, you know, this, this, trend has been pointed out by um, a team of scholars from the Ecole Francaise d'Extremorient who have been very useful and helpful colleagues for my work. Um, Valérie Gillet, Charlotte Schmidt, and Emmanuel Francis. They've looked at this difference between um, what they call royal and local bhakti, and the differences between royal temples and local temples. So the Pallava temples were royal temples in Kachi. They were built by members of the royal court or kings, and they did not sustain the same level of devotion after the Pallava period. So by the time colonial visitors came or visitors, foreign visitors came in the colonial period, they found these Pallava temples in sort of quiet areas of the city. Um, remember, by this point, the city has radically shifted away from the Kailasanatha temple, which is a large temple um, that was being used by just a small number of very local devotees, you know, just in the immediate vicinity, living right around the temple grounds. And um, the other temples were kind of overgrown. They were half buried. They were actually dilapidated. 
But what happened is that um, the early surveys tended then to focus on those temples to the exclusion of all of the active temples in the city. And some of that may have been a result surely of convenience <laughs> that they could photograph there uninterrupted. They could get, you know, they could, they could just walk around freely and observe. Whereas there seems to have already been some level of restricted entry at places like Ekambaranatha and Kamakshi Aman, which were, you know, which were still very active at the time. And so this focus on, um, on the Pallava temples also served the story of India being in a state of decline. And therefore, the colonial officials who were coming to, you know, relative positions of, of, of power, even within, within Kanchi, um, really had to be there, of course, right? Because Kanchi really needed help. Of course, of course. That story, right? Of course, and 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 uh, the Puranas are debased texts that are the, you know, the, the result of priestcraft and and uh, folly, and etc. 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 Sure, certainly, uh, uh, such biases are not unknown in my own research. Um, so, is this um, is this work that you're continuing? Is uh, you know what's next? Hmm. Well, um, my focus really is the museum, but, um, but my work is largely, my research is largely field work based. And I will always continue this, this larger project of, of mapping, um, mapping sacred sites and their connections with landscape across a wider South and Southeast Asian region. Um, I have plenty of field trips that I'd like to do to add sites to a growing resource called Sacred Sites in Southeast Asia, which is an interactive map that I've built with um, colleagues at the museum um, and at the, at the Smithsonian. Um, uh, it's, it's accessed through the Southeast Asia area collection, part of um, the National Museum of Asian Art website. And you can explore um, temple sites throughout. We've, we've put up um, Cambodia, Indonesia, and Myanmar, and see photographs and, and read sort of short photo essays about um, many of those places. So that's, that's a place that, that's an, a resource that I hope to continue to build and plan to continue to build. Um, I actually have two exhibitions that opened very recently at the National Museum of Asian Art. One is an exhibition from our collection of um, prehistoric ceramics from Northeastern Thailand. It's called Prehistoric Spirals, Earthenwares from Thailand, which I, I collaborated with two of our um, conservators and conservation scientists at, um, at the National Museum of Asian Art. And then just uh, on April 30th, um, we opened a big exhibition. It's an adaptation from the Cleveland Museum of Art. It's called Revealing Krishna, Journey to Cambodia's Sacred Mountain. And it really is a synthesis of this interest that I've had for so long in the connection between art and landscape because it's about a monumental sculpture of the Hindu god Krishna lifting the sacred mountain, Govardhan, that was found in, um, in a cave temple in Southern Cambodia, um, about halfway up a sacred mountain called Phnom Da. It's very rare with Cambodian sculpture that we know the actual site that a, plate, that a, a sculpture came from. And we know so much thanks to recent archeological research about the, the connection between that sculpture and the cultural and physical landscape that surrounded it. Continuing on with projects that seem to come back to Kanchi, everything seems to come back to Kanchi. Um, several of us have been researching a group of yoginis from Tamil Nadu. There's been um, quite a number of studies. Padma Kaimal wrote an entire book about them, and we're continuing. Um, we're I'm working with 
the Detroit Institute of Arts to plan an exhibition and, um, and just continuing the research um, on them. It turns out that <laughs> another yogini from that group is, is actually located in a local temple in Kanchi. Um, I had seen it during the course of my field work and went back right before the pandemic to confirm its identity. Um, so there, there, are, there are several of us who are, are continuing to work on, on this. And I expect that it will lead us again and again to the city of Kanchi. Listen, you've got all these past lives of karma to work out in Kanchi. So here we are. Uh, all roads, all, all roads lead to Kanchi. Well, clearly, clearly you have no shortage of uh, endeavors which sound significant and which clearly um, feed you, which clearly you're excited about. So that's great. It's fascinating. Uh, you'll have to come back on the podcast sometime, uh, whether pertaining to publication or perhaps more broad conversation about uh, an exhibit uh, or such. Um, Thank you. Thank you. That would be such a pleasure. <laughs> it's really wonderful speaking with you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise, likewise. <laughs> So for those of you listening, we've been talking to Dr. Emma Stein, who's assistant curator um, of South and Southeast Asian art at the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian National Museum of Asian Art. We've been speaking about a brand new Amsterdam University Press uh, publication called Constructing Kanchi City of Infinite Temples. Um, until next time, keep listening, keep reading, and um, keep contemplating the ancient city of Kanchi. Take care.